You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. Joining him is everyone's favorite coach and hair model, Chris, a.k.a. Tex McQuilkin, Power Athlete's Director of Performance. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the gains begin. Power Athlete Nation, today we welcome Les Spellman, one of America's elite speed performance coaches and founder of Spellman Performance, former walk-on at Temple, and he's trained several Olympians as well as athletes in the NFL, NCAA, USA Rugby, and guided a large number of youth athletes to college scholarships. Welcome to Power Athlete Radio, Les. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Yeah, man, I'm excited. I had the opportunity to scan some of your interviews, and one of our coaches, Darren Hansen, he connected us, so he gave me a little bit of your background, and I'm excited to share it, man. So I want to I want to kick off with your journey into coaching, and that started way back when you were an athlete and then led to eventually a walk-on at Temple University's track team. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I wouldn't call myself much of an athlete in, in the way that I see these guys um, and, and how athletic they are now. Like, I was very mediocre as an athlete growing up. Uh, never really stood out. I was always like average, middle of the pack. Uh, had okay athleticism. Never was really skilled enough on the technical side for any sport. And then like tactically, I always struggled because I always grew up playing like pickup. You know, like I played 21. I didn't play five on five. Um, or like I played pickup soccer, pickup football. Like I wasn't into structured sports. Like I would much rather go ride my bike or go do other stuff. As a kid, I, I like just free play. So when I get into high school, I'm just like super average. Like I got, you know, I was on JV as a junior in high school. That, that gives you context. Like I wasn't that great of an athlete, you know? And um, I, I was also at one of the best sports schools in the country, but still it was like very average. Um, but my senior year comes and I'm like, you know what? Like, I don't know what the sports thing is for me. Like all my friends are getting scholarships. So I'm like still trying to make the, you know, get off the bench on each team <laughs> at my high school. And I'm just like, maybe I wasn't really built to be a division one athlete. So long story short, I, I take a left turn instead of a right turn. And I start working on, uh, you know, hanging out. Like I'm, I'm out there hanging out with my boys. I, I'm living in DC. So you walk outside and there, you know, you could run into, into some trouble pretty quickly. And, that, and that's what happened. And I really just decided like, yeah, I'm not going to play sports anymore. I'm just going to hang out and do this. So long story short, it gets to be April of my senior year, like second half of the year. And I'm like, dude, I'm just going to college. Like I'm already committed to university of Virginia, um, just to go there just for, you know, education. And I get in this really, really, really bad car accident where I break my femur. And essentially what happened was, you know, I got airlifted to the hospital. They're like, Les, you know, your leg is fractured in half. Uh, we've, you've touched an artery and, um, we got to do emergency surgery. It wasn't that calm. Like I'm saying it calm, but I'm, I'm assuming the doctor came in and said that to me. So next day uh, I wake up after surgery and I have a rod, you know, where my bone marrow used to be in my femur. So from hip to knee and they screwed it in. They're like, last look, like, um, hate to tell you, but you know, you're, you're not going to run again. Like you, you will be able to walk. You'll have a normal life. Um, you have to keep a cane with you. You'll do physical therapy. You'll be in pain your whole life. 
And it was that that sparked it for me. And it was like, look, like first thing I just wanted to like bang on that doctor because he he basically came in and gave me my fate. And I'm like, you're not in control. Um, so at first it was like this adverse reaction. Like I'm going to prove everyone wrong. So I'm working, I'm working, I'm working. I'm reading Lance Armstrong. I know it's probably taboo at this point, but I think this is 2007. You know, Lance Armstrong was the guy. Like we have strong bands, all that stuff was popular. So I'm reading his his um, autobiography, and I'm like, all right, this dude had testicular cancer, got back on the bike, and started started rolling. So I'm like, okay, if he can do that, it's just a broken leg. I can fix this thing. So you know, I start working. My mom goes to school. She's a she's a teacher. She leaves for school, leaves for work, and I get up. I just practice like trying to stand up, trying to walk, trying to take myself to the bathroom. So long story short, you know, I basically took small wins from going to the bathroom myself to showering myself to walking to the door to walking to the end of the end of the house to walking to outside walking around the block like got to the point where now I'm walking two blocks five blocks ten blocks and I'm like yo like I you know I gotta run like I, I can figure this thing out so I completely dedicated myself to becoming an athlete again and within a year I was I was walking and within 18 months I was running and as soon as I ran the, that first time, I was I was hooked. And I was like, look, if I can go from wheelchair to walking to running, obviously the next course of action is go to the Olympics, right? I'm thinking there's like not that big of a gap. Like I already did the hard work. So I'm like, I'm gonna I'm gonna figure out a way to get in the Olympics. And I start training for speed. And I'm like, I'm gonna walk on division one track team at Temple University and I'm gonna be a superstar. Like that's how I played it in my mind. Not really how it happened. Like, I get to the point where I get a tryout. And essentially, I only got a tryout because I went to the coach's office so many times within a two-week period that he was annoyed and goes, Les, you could just come try out with a cross-country team. And if you can hang with these guys for four miles, I'll let you be on the team. I'll let you come to practice the next day. And I did that. And somehow, he just kept coming. He told me, hey, come back the next day. Come back the next day. And by Thanksgiving time that year, the roster came out for the team and I was on the team. But like, it never was like, hey, last like you made the team. It was like, I kind of just glanced at the website before Thanksgiving break and saw my name on the roster. So it was a very interesting journey. Um, and I never really became that good at track, to be honest. Like, and I'll tell that, you know, later on. But I, um, for me, it was huge going from not walking to being a Division One athlete. Uh, you know, that was huge. Yeah, it is. It is a hell of a journey, man, and an opportunity to to many young athletes out there that they can play collegiate sports. Many write themselves off, and you have the opportunity to really prove to yourself and many others out there, whether you knew it or not at the time, that there's so much opportunity to to level up your athleticism. So, with the injury, um, was it completely healed? Do you still have any issues with it? I mean, so a, a femur break was it a compound femur shattered? You know, were there plates in there, yeah. or like what was the uh, like what was the extent of the injury? Yeah, it was compound fracture, um, and actually the way that it did is like it it broke where it split in half, and then the bottom part of the femur was actually raised like it was higher than the, the uh, top part of the femur, so it was like cross pattern, and in the process it ripped a lot of muscle tissue. So when they put the pole down the middle. Um, it basically, you know, it held those bones together and then the screws kind of sealed it in there. So the first like year I was in constant pain every night. Um, I was, you know, terrible, terrible pain. I got addicted to painkillers within the first couple of weeks. Um, you know, I was on a morphine drip for the first two weeks in ICU. And then I come home with 
you know, prescription pills, my mom throws them away and I was going through withdrawals. So pain was like huge. I mean, it was tons of pain. Um, first six months was really bad. Second six months was getting better. 18 months in almost no pain. Like there was definitely weakness and there's definitely, um, you know, like instabilities. So there's pain to call it like my groin would flare up because I just didn't have the groin strength anymore. Or I didn't have like, you know, there's the hamstring strength. Like there was so many things around the hip that I, that I started to, um, you know, feel weaker in. But as far as like the structure, there wasn't much pain. And when I really started strength training, that's when the pain started going away. It's like the rehab. I mean, I, I don't want to criticize my rehab, but it didn't, it didn't work for me. But strength training was my rehab. When I got stronger, that's when I started I didn't have pain and I got faster. Well, the, uh, usually with the rehab process, the idea is that they're trying to rehab the injury back to a point where like as an average person, you can go live your life. So I think that's where like right. a lot of misconceptions, people think like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to rehab this and it's going to get me back to how I was. That's not the case. I mean, uh, uh, unless you're, you know, uh, a professional athlete that's, uh, you know, a team has vested money to try to get you back on the field. I mean, the rehab stuff, my older brother, uh, tore his patellar tendon and he had to go to rehab mm-hmm. and, you know, their big thing was just like, okay, we're going to get function back in like f- full range of motion for them right. was like, okay, you're healthy now, full range of motion. And like, he calls me and he's like, Hey, I got all these issues. I'm like, well, you know, here's some programming. This is what we got to do. You got to get you back to this. And thank God we had some friends that helped him back. But I just think that the model and then the other issue you run into is most physical therapists. And we know this because we have a lot of physical therapists that follow our methodology and also within our power athlete net, um, network. Um, lifting weights is not part of their curriculum and most of them don't know how. So then you're like, you right. know, you're like, hey, I want to come back as an athlete. I broke my leg. And they're like, hmm. well, you have full range of motion. Pain is gone. Get the fuck out of here. Insurance is over. Right. And then it's like now yeah, I got to go back 100%. to the gym and get fucking strong as fuck. But then how do you do that? Yeah, 100 percent. Like. I had an occupational therapist, like to give you context, like <laughs> this guy would come by my house and he'd be like, Les, like, I'm going to help you stand up. I'm going to help you wipe your ass. I'm going to help you, you know, get water from the fridge on your own. I'm like, bro, like I'm trying to go to the Olympics, bro. Like, yeah. what do you mean? Like wipe my ass. Like, so, and then I go to PT, PT's like, all right, we're going to get you to 90 degrees flexion. I was like, is that the goal? Or is that like this week? And they're like, no, that's the goal. I'm like, Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna slide out left and uh, well, did, start working on this home. Did you have uh, like I mean obviously the break in the femur, but was the lack of range of motion in the knee or the hip or a combination of the both? It was both, but the the knee flexion was an issue initially because I actually couldn't bend my knee at all um, after the surgery. So really, I mean they they drilled screw and they did a lot of traction from like the actually below my knee and above my knee to get to get the bone set in place. Mm-hmm. And they drilled, they drilled holes in like my VMO. Um, they drilled holes in my quad. They drilled holes in my in my calf. And like, I had a ton of issues just because of that. So, um, so what? So, so shit, dude. Let me get some context on this. So, what they did is they put <laughs> fucking anchors in, and then they drilled yeah. all these different. Um, for those of you guys that are listening, you can do the visual. What they effectively did is they put in anchors, and then they used traction so that they could try to get the yeah. bone to to line back up because a compound fracture means that it actually sets this way: spiral, spiral break, and then there's different versions of that. Like when I broke my fibula, it was compound, so it was side by side. But what they'll do is they'll yep. stretch 
and they create traction and they have to find anchor points. You know, and if you know levers, they put like different lever points. And so then it creates that and then they're trying to get it to heal in. And then you were probably immobilized while this was happening. So then your leg is 100%. locked in a fixed position at zero and then you come out and your knee, which hasn't been bent for how long were you in the traction device? I mean, it was, it was, it was weeks on the traction device, but then when I had the, you know, left actually out of the surgery, like I was immobilized for, I mean, I don't even know how I couldn't even tell. Probably like three months. Like, cause so <laughs> yeah, about three months when I tore my patellar, uh, same thing. They fucking locked me in a, um, in a brace and like, I couldn't bend my, you know, I was, I was like in bed for three weeks and I couldn't bend my knee for three months. And then they get out and they're yeah. like, okay, time to rehab. And you're like, uh, fuck, I got no quad, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, I used to get, um, I did, I don't know if this happened to you, but I used to get, uh, when they locked my leg, I would get, um, um, these like, uh, the only thing I could call it was like a phantom, um, phantom contractions. Yeah, yeah. Where, where yeah. like I would just start, like my leg was straight and I would just start firing my quad and trying to get it to fire. And it just happened randomly all day. Like I'd be sound asleep and yeah. wake up and my leg would be firing. It's the weirdest thing. And yeah, they're 100%. like, Oh, it's a, it, it's a phantom contraction. I'm like, there's nothing phantom about this. Like what's fucking my body's ready to go. And like, this shit's fucked up. I mean, so yeah, dude, I've been there. Yeah. I mean, not as severe as that one. I mean, mine was, uh, you know, a patellar tendon, but fuck dude. So they have, um, so, yeah. so anchor points pull you apart. The, they put a, uh, a steel rod in to try to fuse the bones and then put plates and screws yep. and everything to fit it together. Damn. Yeah, no, it was, it was serious. Like it was, and like when I explained it, like, Hey, like we're going to do this surgery. It was more like we're rushing you into surgery at the moment. And it, we're going to start the traction and you're going to be going like out of, out of it as we're doing the traction piece. Like we're going to, you know what I mean? It was, it was like, Holy crap. Like I could see them bringing the equipment in the room, you know? So yeah, it, it was rough, but it, it left me to the point where like I had atrophied so much and I was probably 145 pounds when I, when I got out of that like phase, maybe 145. And you, you mentioned you were headed to UVA. Did you put that on hold because, due to this injury? I actually ended up going. So the other piece of the, the injury that I had was I actually had a traumatic brain injury from the accident. So I was like really struggling to read and comprehend um, and just and just like attention. You know what I mean? And I'm sure some of that was just PTSD and all that stuff. But there was like a, there was a, a rehab process for my brain. And part of that process helped me become a coach. Like I learned how to like group things. So like they would give me all these words and be like, group all these words into a box and, and then name that box and then put a bigger box and name that box. Like I was doing things like that as, as rehab. So I went to, I went to UVA my first semester, but I was struggling. So I, I dropped out. I bet I went back to community college and in community college is when I started really diving in. So like think about just the timeline. So that was April is when I had the surgery by September, I was already at school, but I was barely moving around. So like think about going to class, think about all that stuff. It was a challenge and I was on my own, like family wasn't there. So it really wasn't until like almost the next April that I was like out of pain. And then that's when I was in community college. In community college, I was able to like really hone in um, on my personal rehab process. And that year, that's when I pretty, pretty much propelled myself to get to the point where I could run and run fast. And for your strength training, like where did you go for a resource? Did you lean on just, hey, this this feels right at this moment, or did you have a coach or a program to go after to help you in the gym? Yeah, like initially, I I was really poor because I, I never I didn't lift weights in high school like that. You know, like 
when I, I mean, I graduated high school in 2007. So our strength coaches were typically like um, a football, like D line coach, or it was like a gym teacher. You know, it wasn't it wasn't anybody that was um, qualified. I should say it was kind of like, all right, here's three lifts, roll through three by ten. So like, I started out and I was like so weak, I couldn't do that stuff. So I actually focused on body weight first, just like uh, push ups, pull ups, and squats, and those are the three movements that I really just did in, in a high volume initially and then I added lunges because I was more advanced and then I added like basic things like um you know just like single leg spots and just I just grew I had no idea but when I got to temple and we had our, our strength conditioning stuff like that's when I really really grew like I, I mean that's when I started really loading so I would say like that first like the strength period I had was really general basic strength stuff um you know push-ups pull-ups you know jumping jacks like calisthenics like i didn't know any better you know but it, it was super helpful well no i mean super it's helpful. it's uh i mean if, if you look at all the base level gpp training stuff it was always calisthenics i mean shit jim wendler still has this guys who jump in jacks is to build basic you know i mean you know air squats push-ups pull-ups sit-ups uh jumping jacks i mean like that stuff and that base level GPP stuff is so important, especially when you come back from an injury. I think everybody thinks like, you know, the more advanced, the better. But sometimes you just need to get a base level of fitness and just start moving, which uh, I don't For know sure. if people like pay that enough respect where you're like, all right. Yeah. Like uh, there's a bunch of different training modalities that we can get into. But like, can you are you coordinated basically enough to do jumping jacks or do skips? Um Right. One of my favorite things, and we've seen this at seminars over the years, and I see it all the time, especially uh, we were when we were I was doing some training yesterday, just why, watching adults try to skip is fucking hysterical. <laughs> uh, we were trying yeah. to just basically just do like alternate arm skips, uh, like follow the leader stuff. And the amount of people that were like same leg, same arm and couldn't do it, I was like, holy shit, dude. Every little kid in the world can skip. Obviously, take some yeah. like 20, 30, 40 year olds and ask them to skip. It ain't really going to happen very well. So, I mean, there's some base level yeah. coordination and just being able to execute those things that is so important. Where, where'd you go to high school in yeah. D.C.? St. John's. St. John's. So it's uh, yeah, it's like it's like a big sports school. Yeah, yeah it was awesome. Yeah, I, I coached at at St. Albans. So for a little bit. Oh, no way. My brother went there. What year? He's four years older than me. Oh, he's older. So he, he okay. graduated 2000, 2003. Yeah, I, um, I definitely yeah. missed him then. Yeah, I was, shit, coaching there 14, 15, 16. Um, but yeah, well-versed in the D.C. area. Yeah, uh, you probably know my cousin. He went there, but we'll talk offline about that, that little yeah. bit. Um, but awesome, dude. I want to continue down this road. So you took your own approach to learning how to move. And I want to eventually get to where you are now. So essentially from body weight calisthenics into the weight room, when did you start to incorporate the, the speed drills? So it went from basic movements to now, hell, you're leaving the ground. You're getting explosive. Yeah. So what was that yeah. like yeah. emotionally and physically? It was hard. I mean, I remember the first day at, uh, at Temple, we get in the weight room and the coach is like, all right, like start off at 135, you do, do a couple of reps and then build into like your work sets. And I was maxing out at 135. No lie. Like it's embarrassing to talk about now, but I was, that was as much as I could do. So it was, I was so far behind strength wise um, that like I had to start working with the coach kind of on the side, which ended up being a blessing because, you know, he taught me how to lift. He taught me how to get stronger. Like I, I really dedicated myself to the weight room. Um, so that was, that was the first part. And the second part was like, 
we started doing speed drills and track and field obviously like your warm-ups for like an hour and track like the first day I was like all right man that was a good workout coach was like all right now get on the line and we'll run and you know I, I had done you know 16 18 drills you know before that so I really understood um from that point that the, the patterning of learning how to run wasn't necessarily going to come from just running like there had to be another thing like obviously I knew I had to be strong enough to run which you know which I, I can talk about just like in terms of how I'd look at it in, in assessing speed. But the, the first thing that I wanted to do was look at speed as a skill. And if I could understand the postures and if I could understand the patterns that were associated with those postures and then understand how to apply power to it and I could run faster. So I just started to apply that framework. Like I knew the gym was gonna give me the power. I knew the drills were gonna give me the technical skill application. And then I would apply it in my run. So if I had, 16 runs that day I had 16 opportunities to practice what I just kind of built within that triangle awesome uh who who was the strength coach you were working with at Temple Mark Proto I think he's at the College of Charleston now but yeah that's my guy yeah, he was he was amazing no there's I mean dude amazing. dude it's pretty conclusive I mean from not only working with athletes but all the research that uh people that sprint are generally stronger than the people that don't uh, the eccentric nature of sprinting and being able to pull through like uh, anytime, you know, we're training athletes, like if we can put some form of sprinting in, even if it's like something, you know, uh, uphill sprint or some something resisted, I mean, it doesn't have to go real long. But I know for athletes, like you can get strong lifting weights, but the minute that you start putting that sprint component in, like the strength numbers go through the roof. And uh, I think it's severely unutilized especially in the world the internet where everybody's trying to get strong and they think it all happens and i'm like dude even if you had like you know four to seven max effort sprints once or twice a week um you know maybe every 72 hours like in, in a in a smart strength conditioning program you know where you're maybe training four days a week and you know building a little bit of zone two i mean fuck dude like we've seen it just over yeah. the years it's it's such a powerful stimulus that, um, 100%. you know, it, it just makes sense. And then you're talking about technique and, uh, efficiency and like, you know, being able to run is like, uh, you know, uh, I mean, dude, one of the classic ones, uh, it's really easy to assess athleticism, uh, especially when you watch people run or like I was talking about watching people skip. I mean, just being able to be fluid with the nature and being able to move through it. Like it's really yeah. just like an instant snapshot to the point where, you know, Cal Dietz, um, you know, he said, dude, I can see somebody sprint 10 yards and tell you exactly where they're deficient and whether or not, you know, what degree of athleticism and if in kind of his hierarchy, they sit and what they need to do for their training. This episode of Power Athlete Radio is powered by Train Heroic, the most immersive strength training app experience on the market. We've built our online training business by partnering with Train Heroic and helping us deliver all of our world-class training programs like Jack Street, Field Strong, and Grindstone. To learn which Power Athlete training program best suits your goals, head to powerathletehq.com training. And if you're a coach looking to build a business with the best tech and training, go to trainheroic.co forward slash powerathletehq. And now, back to the show. For sure. Yeah, well, if you look at like, Sprinting is, is a, you could put it in the weight room. Like it's, it's just another exercise classification. It just happens to be the highest velocity thing that you can do. There's not an exercise in the weight room that you could do that's over five meters per second, six meters per second, or let's say even just 15 miles per hour, whatever, whatever you look at it. So it's a, it's a stimulus that will, will aid in power because power can come from, you can come from the strength side, it can come from the velocity side, but with a good balance of the two, like, you develop your ability to develop force-based power, which is going to help your acceleration. It's going to help 
the beginning part of the run, but developing that speed side, the velocity side, like you got, you got the only way you can really do it is get out and do it. Like it's, it's hard to, it's hard to replicate that. You have to have prerequisites of power in the weight room and, you know, ability to apply force. But one thing that's really interesting is that the way you apply force in the weight room is significantly different than the way you apply force in the truck. And if you look at it, it's like we're applying forces within 0.2 meters, 0.2, um, milliseconds like we're, we're applying in 0.2 seconds like you have to apply a huge amount of force in a small time frame and the way that you do that is not just like slow grinding strength it's your ability to whip your leg down to the ground which is highly technical so having a balance of all those things helps you apply forces to the ground to go forward well i mean the, the other one is is you have to have a certain amount of rigidity and i mean i don't know if it's rigidity or stiffness in the tendons and the stiffness, ligaments yeah. you know i use the word rigidity but yes it's really stiffness and it's extremely hard to develop that stick uh, stiffness with like you know uh closed chain barbell lifts you know you think about like plyometrics or jumping or sprinting i mean that ability to be able to like absorb and, and reduce and uh, you know fucking generate force to be able to sprint is extremely hard to do in the weight room that's why like at some point you got to you know and we you know when you look at it like um because uh, people are going to listen to this podcast and like oh shit i'm gonna go out and start sprinting and i'm always like whoa 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 <laughs> there, there's like a very real um uh, like acclimation phase and we use it with like lifting weights and plyos and short runs getting people up because i don't think that they realize what a potent stimulus it is and how easy it is to hurt yourself. I mean, the amount of people I've seen and we taught at seminars, like the minute they came out, all of a sudden the horizon changed where all of a sudden their heads come up and all of a sudden as they arch and they start reaching and they blow a hamstring. And I'm like, fuck, dude, I've seen that too many times. And it's because they just yeah. don't have, uh, you know, within the tissue, the ligaments, I mean, the, the stiffness within that, I mean, all these key factors, like there has to be a preparation phase to get somebody to sprinting. Because I think we think about it like, shit, I sprinted when I was a little kid. I ran all the time. It's so natural. It's one of our, you know, like most primal basic patterns, on the, uh, you know, but yet if you don't do it with regularity, it can be extremely dangerous. Well, it's just like I wouldn't walk in the gym put 600 on the bar if I, hadn't, if I hadn't squatted in six years, seven years, 10 years, like, uh, you know, I wouldn't jump into a max strength phase. And it's like the same thing for running is it's progressive. Like you can only, you know, if you think about maximal sprinting as the, as the goal, like getting the maximal sprinting could take weeks mm-hmm. for someone to actually get there. But what can you do? You can accelerate. So like multiple accelerations are relatively low velocity and it's more muscular based. And if you're like training and your, you know, your thing isn't sprinting, it's not sports and you want to train speed, I would train acceleration. I would do heavy sleds. I would push sleds, pull sleds, those types of things. Like, like getting to the, the velocity side, it has to be progressive. And each week you can add a little bit more, add a little bit more to the point where you're going out and you're actually full sprinting, but you've microdosed velocity exposures into your training where you know, you might start off with five yard sprints. That's high velocity if you haven't sprinted in a while. Or then you start doing ten yard sprints and then eventually you do twenty or thirty, but you you progress. Even even when we have pro guys come, like I don't care if you've been you've been sprinting your whole life. We take two weeks to really rebuild our exposure to velocity before we actually get into high velocity stuff. You know, that was one of the points of contention we had when we heard um, uh, Joe DeFranco speak years ago. You remember when he was talking about training those combine guys with heavy sleds? Uh, He was using basically heavy sleds to like replicate everything. The only issue is there's no eccentric load when you're pushing a heavy sled. 
And uh, yeah. that was like always a weird one for me where I'm like, hey, he's using these guys to kind of prime them, but yet there's no eccentric load with a sled. So like when you move them over, like how are you progressing into it? And we never got to answer that question. But then again, he didn't claim to know any science. He just knew that for some reason when the guys pushed sleds, they sprinted faster. But yeah, like, I could talk to that. You know, but that's, a, yeah. that's an interesting piece. Like uh, I, I think that people, when they think about the idea of like putting their foot in the ground to sprint, don't understand that like the eccentric load is so much more powerful because you're effectively almost carrying through and then putting your foot in the ground and like driving it through and like the, you know, like the uh, ability to, to transition between concentric and eccentric is such a important phase, but we know the eccentric is so much more damaging. Yeah, Les, I'm going to tee you up here. So part of that presentation, Joe was focusing on what he did with his professional athletes and we got no context on what he would do with a high schooler. And you pride yourself in that development and have the opportunity to really work with some NFL athletes. So help us bridge that gap in the importance of what you utilize, whether it's just, hey, I do these assessments with my pro athletes to make sure they're in check, or, okay, here's our, our long-term plan to get up to that full speed that John's speaking of. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of the same. Like, it's, it doesn't change, I think, the way that you approach it and the aggressiveness you attack it with or the length of the system, like, you know, how you train high school athletes in the weight room and how you train, um, you know, NFL guys is like, it, it is relatively the same components. They're just at different ends of complexity. So first thing you look at is like, are you effective as a sprinter? Like, can you run? So if you look at time and velocity, you look at a 40, you look at a 20, you look at a 30, whatever it is, like, are they effective? And then from there, you want to answer some questions like, where are they not effective? So, if I look at sprinting and I look at a 40, really what it is is an acceleration. That means they're going from no velocity to the highest velocity they can reach. Most people, high school, pros, everybody, they have a phase of that acceleration where they're not good. So let's say it's early. Okay, that means they're not a good starter. Or if it's mid, they're not a good transition. Or velocity, they're not hitting a high velocity. There's something that's going on. Very few people can do all three very well. So the next thing I want to do is I want to give exposure to each of those phases. So let's call the early part, like the early part of acceleration. Let's call that force-based power. So that's, a, that's an athlete's ability to concentrically produce force and be able to, to move their body to a higher velocity. Now, like you said, there's not a ton of eccentric forces in there or eccentric contractions. But the ability to concentrically produce force, if you can, if you're strong, if you can trap our deadlift, if you can squat, you can be good in a three-yard, five-yard sprint. Like, that's there's there's a requirement there to be strong. Now, if you look at the next phase, look at some of that transition, that's really power because it's a mixture of being able to produce forces and climb to higher velocities. So the contact times are getting faster and getting more elastic, but it's in that middle. I'm still climbing. And then at velocity, we know that that's, like, very elastic. But I need to have all three to be effective, right? So what happens is when people are training, training speed, they typically focus on one of those three things. So you go to track practice, it's very high velocity. We're just going to go run, 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 and we're going to run very fast, very, right? Or if you go to football practice, you might pull sleds, you might push sleds, you might do stuff in the weight room that's very, very, very force-based, but you may not get that velocity exposure. So a good program really, really takes all three into account. So if I want to train the early part of my run, you know, I'm going to get stronger, going to be in the weight room, but I'm also going to push and pull heavy things. Now, if I want to be good in my transition and I want to be effective climbing to higher velocities, 
I need to have a mixture. I need to have like a medium load if I'm running with a load, maybe some hills, higher velocity exposures, more jumping, more broad jumping, triple jumping, all those types of things. Now, if I want to be good at the velocity part, I need to do elastic things. I need to work speed strength in the weight room. I need to work plyometrics in short ground contacts, right? I need to work on depth drop and those types of things to fill that bucket. So for me, the first thing I look at is can I fill the physical bucket? And if I'm doing it in the weight room already, what are some ways I can apply those things faster on the field and more horizontally oriented to get that more specific stimulus for that athlete? So I want to be as close as I can to the actual, you know, actual skill set, right? So if I'm working acceleration, I want every drill to work the skill set of acceleration. And then I just build it from there. So if I'm working a total season, it makes sense to work some of that really heavy acceleration stuff like off season, like I'm building strength at the same time. Now, as I'm getting closer to season, I'm going to do more power. And as I get closer, I'm going to do more velocity. It's very similar to how you would, you would, you would systemize your weight room work. And it can go, it can be concurrent. And the best way to do it is do them together. So either your strength leads your speed or your speed leads your strength. But either way, you got to make sure that you're staying within your buckets. You're not going to train a max strength and heavy, long, you know, pulling and all that stuff and then go out and do high velocity work on the same day you want to match those qualities up together and that's step one and for a training session how long does it usually last let's stick with the high schoolers that a two-hour session you got them for 90 you got them for 60 like what's the focus there to accomplish all of this that's the thing is like it could be any any time 15 minutes 30 minutes 45 so it's so if i have a short amount of time then i'm going to go after the exposure so if I don't have a lot of time, the number one thing I want to do is make sure I get my speed exposure. So that's either accelerated speed or that's high velocity running or it's jumps and piles. And I want to get the physical work. The more time that I have, the more I can bleed in coaching. So coaching is a stimulus. Coaching is difficult. Coaching is an adjustment. But I want to make sure that I only am doing that when I have the time to make corrections, talk through things, work through things. If I don't have time, the number one thing I can do is just get exposure. So what my most high schools see it as is like, all right, look, like I don't have time to do an hour session. So we're just not going to do it. Well, mm. you could go out and do three fly runs. You could do five accelerations, 10 accelerations. You could do a ton of accelerations. There's, you could do high volumes, but you can do low volumes of speed that microdose throughout your, throughout your uh, weekly, weekly schedule. But what I see is that people are like, if it's not the highest level complex, we're just, we don't have time. So to answer the question, in the off season, I would spend more time. I would spend time coaching. I would spend an hour if I can. As I get closer to the season, I would do more stimulus. I would pull back on the coaching. I wouldn't coach as much. There's so many things these guys are learning technically and tactically in their sport. If they're a football player, they got to learn plays. They got to learn. They got to study film. Don't make speed something that competes with that demand. So do your coaching in the off season. And as you get closer, now we're just looking for stimulus. And what we do with schools, we work with two NCAA teams, work with the NFL team, we work with the hockey team, work with different teams. What we do is we help them get exposures in practice. Because if you're doing it at a high level and doing it the right way, you've built the right offseason, that you have your phases of force-based power, power and velocity. As you get to the season, you design your practices to touch on those speed qualities and get those speed exposures where you can have hey, we're going to do higher velocity today with longer rest periods and certain drills and certain periods so you guys can be exposed to high velocities. 
we've seen it show up in games. So at that point, it's really just about like every week making sure we tick the box and getting above 90% velocity. And we know if we do that, the game is going to show up. We're going to hit velocities above 90, maybe even 95. Um, to give you an example, we have a Pac-12 team that has 37 new top speeds in season this year, 37 different numbers. So it can work in season as well. So how are, how are you tracking all this? I mean, is it, um, I'm just wondering on like the, the technology aspect. Yeah, like you know, GPS has is, is become a commodity. It's so easy to get GPS now. So with the Pac-12 teams, they all wear GPS in games. Um, and it's really easy. So essentially all that, all that data goes into the cloud. I get that data out of the cloud. I make the report. I can see everybody. But in high school, like let's say there is no budget. You can't track those things. Yeah. You can you can gauge efforts. So I know that like athletes know what 100 percent or 95 percent effort feels like, and you can ask them like like was that was that full effort? Like it can be more subjective, but if the intention is there, like hey, today we're going to give you a, an opportunity to reach above a 90 percent effort. Guys know what that means. Like you, you can feel it. Or if the practice is just kind of like tempo based and you're just kind of going through the motions and like that's important too to get volumes in. But if I want to get intensities, it's going to look a little different. I need to have some intention to explain to the players how to do that. Yeah, we used to use, uh, when I was training with Roth, we used to use the banded resisted runs to coach technique because it wasn't until like all of a sudden when cell phones started getting really dope video with like iPhone, um, like we started shooting video. So then all of a sudden we could coach in real time. So then all of a sudden now you're getting coached off the video like, hey, look at one arm to swing. Whereas, you know, before when we were running, people would be like, great job, you know, and you run away from them. So we started doing banded resisted runs so that the, so that we could actually walk and get coached at the same time. And then when we got actually to like to shoot video and brought some stuff out, it was huge. I mean, now I think about it like, shit, the technology is so dope that like, you know, a kid could have an iPhone, shoot it, and then send it over to you somewhere else around the world. You could look at it and probably give them real-time feedback. Like, 100%, which is, I mean, Which is, yeah. like, it, like that would have, I'm not kidding you, like when um, I think about like how many days within like the training space of learning to Olympic lift, if they could have just shown me what I was doing and then coached me off of that, how much faster we could opposed to just like, you know, screaming cues at us. And so I 100%. think like, you know, yeah. the, the, the ability to coach speed and see this stuff and replicate or be able like, hold on, I have an athlete that's really good. Let me show you what he's doing. And then seeing like the one to one instead of like, you know, in that real time thing, man, like the coaching space is so yeah. much easier. Like I was thinking about our athletes like we're working with, like shooting video of them being like, hey, I want you're doing this. I need you to do this. And then them being able to make that correction is so invaluable. 100 percent. And the interesting thing is on that is like. So we have a Pac-12 team, we have an ACC team. Those are two different, two different conferences, two different time zones, two different worlds, right? Two different offenses, done, two, two different, two different styles of football. <laughs> two different styles of football. Yeah. Now, let me tell you this. We've done zero technique with them. And each team is having, on average, four to five new top speeds per game. So what does that tell me as a coach? It tells me technique is important in certain phases. But is that the most important thing in season? Probably not. I've, am I going to make a change? Probably not. But what is the most important thing is exposure and stimulus. So like if, if there's, you don't have to have a high um, training age or, or coaching ability to, to actually make someone faster. All you really need to do initially is get them exposure to those things. And then you can start to shape it up into the technical piece when you have that opportunity. But what I've seen now is in the industry, there's, there's less and less people um, 
that feel comfortable that are like, oh, you know, well, speed is, is great, but like, I, I can't coach it. Like, yeah, you can. You can design practice. Yeah. If your head coach could be your speed coach. Hey, let's, let's decide that we're going to do speed in practice today, full speed. Well, I, I think All that right. there's a bit of a misconception. I mean, with like, you think about strength training, like, uh, you know, can you, like, I, I always think about strength training a little bit. Like, uh, am I going to listen to somebody who's not strong? Like that was something I ran into a lot playing, uh, you know, playing football. Um, you know, you're in the NFL and like all of a sudden, you know, you're getting coached by a dude that never played in the NFL and might never have played offensive line. And that was always kind of weird for me. Like I always took coaching better from dudes that are like, Hey man, when I, you know, was playing next to Anthony Munoz, this is how we locked it down. And you're like, well, shit, that dude's pretty good. He's in the hall of fame. And I know who this guy is. Like that was always more meaningful. Uh, you know, same with strength training, like having a coach that actually was fairly strong or, a you know, a sprint coach that actually could run. So I wonder sometimes like, and you know, we were talking a little bit about like, sport coaches that might not be physically fit enough to be able to do their stuff, you know, having the same credibility piece. So like taking sprint coaching from somebody that can't run, like, does that pay? I mean, is that doable in today's world or, you know, does that not pay dividends? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think there's a misconception on what speed training is. Like speed training is not technical, just technical training. Like if you want to do technical training, that's, there's a lot you can do, learn from track and there's a lot you can do. Not every coach is going to be Dan Path and Stu McMillan like those, and Jonas. Like, those are amazing. The world's best eyes in coaching. Like, no one has a better eye than those guys. But you can make someone faster without having a ton of knowledge how to make them faster. If you can manage schedules, if you can manage stimulus, if you can manage exposure, then you can do it. So it's not like, oh, I'm a sprint coach. Like, no, I'm actually a football coach. And I might be a DB coach or wide receiver coach. I can make everybody in my group faster just by exposing them to top speeds mm. and then managing the rest periods and managing how much volume they do. Yeah. So if there's like, take the risk away, there, there's a risk in doing a lot of volume with high speed running. Well, yeah, so you have to understand th- that part. Yeah, Cause it's super hard in the central nervous system. Well, and I think people, what they right. do is they try to replace quality with fucking quantity and they figure we'll just hammer and it home. This is the sport coach challenge for many, unless you're doing yeah. a great job educating the sport coaches in which you're working with and showing where speed and uh, the different exposures can fit into a practice. But then there's a lot of coaches out there that say, we're not in good enough shape. So they expose to too much volume that's slow, cyclical, monotonous, and we're getting in fourth quarter shape that then can take away from, unfortunately, the speed of these guys, which will, I mean, if you're that far ahead in the game, what's fourth quarter shape? Yeah, 100%. Well, most of the time, what I've seen is that it's not that they're out of shape, is that they can't repeatedly run high speeds, high power events. Yeah. Yes. They can't do high, repeated high efforts. It's it, They're in shape. When I look at, I, you know, a couple of times, like I, I am like a complete um, nerd with this stuff. Like I don't really watch TV, so I just go do stuff. So I put, I put GPS on a high school team, 10,000 yards in a practice. Now, if you don't understand what that means, if you're listening, I, I also track NFL teams. One player hit 5,000 yards. Another player hit 6,000 yards. Nobody's over 7,000 yards in an NFL game. So you're Man. telling me that a high school team is doing 10,000 yards of practice. Now, when I look at the speeds, there's about 80% of it less than 50% velocity. 
Well, it, uh, right. like, like if, if you look at your, uh, like off season and I'm sure you're, you're looking at these percentages based off of like off season, if a, you know, dude comes in and runs, let's say like 11 second hundred, like what's the percentage. And, uh, like when you look at like an NFL deal, like nobody runs fucking at a hundred percent. Like, I mean, if you're trying to run in pads, you're mm. trying to shake a DB, yeah. if you're a receiver, you're trying to run your route. I mean, at best, those guys gotta be what? 80, 85%. No, actually every, so Every single skill player that we have that plays division in our in ACC and, and um, Pac-12 will hit above 90% in game. Mm. They average if they're if we have things correct. It wasn't always like that. 85% was kind of the standard, but now players are playing above 90%, and they'll have exposures to one or two runs above 95 or to 100. Now we're seeing new new max speeds weekly, and I'm saying new max speed is like including the summer when they're running. In shirt and shoot in shirt and uh, short like regular shirt, you know what I'm saying shorts. Those are flying, and it's because they're being exposed. Like speed training, they can get faster in season all year. Like you can progressively get people faster the entire year. So players are like our NFL guys that play skill positions that allow them to run will hit above 90% velocity. Obviously, if you're a running back and don't break, or you're running inside routes, or you know you're covering the slot, like yeah, you may not hit it. But guys that have most of the guys will hit it uh, above above ninety percent, and especially even in practice. And if you look at how you practice, you can work on getting in shape. That could be a day. If you look at soccer, they have tactical periodization, where one day of the week there's volume. There's one hundred and twenty percent of the game volume. Then the next day might be one hundred and twenty percent of the power events, which means like times that they accelerate, times that they try to hit top speed, maximal efforts. Then you have another day that might be maximal decelerations and changes of directions, but they have themes. And if you touch on those qualities, you can make your practice, your physical training in season and make it actually um, make you better throughout the season. I'm liking all this. I'm tracking on all of it. So I get the opportunity to coach at a local high school here and was approaching our, um, cause they a lot don't use the weight room or have any formal training. What they are exposed to at our practices is it. So I get 14 minutes of practice. I was just thinking directionally. So front to back, you know, sprinting forwards, decelerating, and eventually working in backpedal. And then lateral movement. So teaching them different crossover steps, 5-10-5 progression, and just looking at it in terms of directional. But now I can incorporate the the different, uh, the start, the acceleration, and the max velocity, the phases that you're speaking on here. So I can see that play into our practice. Uh, I was just thinking directionally, but now... The, the intensity and the, the volume balance that you're speaking of. I had a coach years ago who told me uh, nobody ever got accidentally fast. He's like, I'd seen people get accidentally strong where like they just like would do something and get stronger in the weight room. Like they like strength happened like by accident sometimes, like you would get strong in spite of what you were doing. Uh, he said nobody ever got fast accidentally. Like if you wanted to get fast, you had to run fast and put effort forth. And I always thought that was a pretty interesting one where like, you know, like nobody, you know, you see somebody run fast. They just like, there has to be something like there, like, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's people that rolled out of the womb, put their foot in the ground and fucking went hundred miles an hour. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, like, you know, and I'm, I'm, I mean, and there's freaks in the NFL. I mean, we played with dudes that were fast, but like very few people accidentally got fast. I never just like happened to be fast. It was always a lot of effort, yeah. a lot of work, controlling volume, knowing that it's extremely hard in the CNS and that, you know, just fucking junk volume. I mean, that was the whole, um, 
um, you know, Charlie Francis deal. You're either running 92 plus or you're doing tempo runs anywhere in the no man's land. It's just going to be fucking junk volume. It's going to hurt you. Yeah. Yeah. And even like, it's so crazy. Cause like what, what coaches don't understand is, is speed isn't always the same for every position. So speed for a defensive lineman is going to be a lot different than the speed for a receiver by requirement. So a defensive lineman is going to have to maximally accelerate and have to make an impact continue to accelerate and change direction right but the the actual maximum velocity is not really not really there like so if you actually they they are going to end up in those 80 percent range but it's because they're only taking six steps seven steps but that's like Aiden Hutchinson he spent a lot of time developing like his his ability to maximally accelerate from from his position right but then you look at like big skill guys linebackers now they're going to move more lateral side to side and make change of direction and be able to, to accelerate two three times in a single play but then you look at a receiver they might only accelerate hard one time in a play but they're going to hit a higher velocity so there's three different types of strains like the the high velocity part is going to be extremely taxing on the, on the nervous system for that receiver but then there's going to be physical like muscular demands on the lineman and and some of those like deceleration reacceleration those types of things so the stresses end up looking slightly different in the exposures. So uh, like five, if we take five reps and if I say, we're going to look at practice and manage reps. If I take five reps from DBs, five reps, receivers, five reps, linemen, five reps, um, linebackers, those five reps are going to be very different if I were to dive deeper in what those five reps look like. So that's why I think positionally, and this is, you can take this out of football and put it in basketball, forwards, guards, um, small forwards, all that stuff. Like there's different demands within a volume. So if I just looked only at volume, 5,000 yards, it's not enough. If I looked only at intensity, which is high speed, it's not enough. If I look at all those things, plus excels, how many how many reps or time between reps, like all those things matter. So it's really interesting when you break down, like what can you actually improve? You can really improve what you train, like, you're, like you were saying. Um, but what happens is a general blanket stimulus gets covered for everybody because it's hey we don't have time but then you go practice football well you do have time because you can you can blow the whistle and take a minute or 45 seconds or you can take 10 seconds those are two energy systems you're working you know what i mean so there there is opportunity i think it's just coaches need to understand what speed looks like and it's not a sprinter running 100 meters i last story i'll tell is we, we have a high school that is the most unathletic high school in San Diego. It was, right? So we came in there. I'm not going to say the name, but, you know, the kids are smart, and they won't feel it any type of way of me saying this. Kids are really, really smart. But they lost 20 games in a row. Like, no lie, 20 games in a row. Zero games 2020. Uh, they won. They won one game in 2021 at the end of the season because they played, like, a division lower. So we came in there, and all we did was all season, we ran through, went from force base power to velocity, during practices, we started giving them opportunities to have higher speeds. So anyway, the team is, you know, they're, they're in the second round of playoffs tonight. They've already, they lost two games, seven and two. There's opportunity. There's opportunity there. And you can you can do it. It's not hard. It doesn't take an expert to do it. Awesome. Yeah, we love success stories. And I want to take back a step back to your athletic career. Following Temple, you had the opportunity to play a little rugby 
And my, yeah. my question is, man, how, how is your brain thinking at that moment to take your track skills and start to apply them to this multi-directional reactional sport? Was it rugby or was it sevens? I played sevens. I played fifteens yeah. and sevens. Yeah. Okay. Played fifteens and sevens. Um, well, dude. Well, it was the like sevens for sprinters is fucking the coolest game. I don't know. Like uh, to me, like yeah. I, I like the fifteens, but the sevens is dope because it's like watching seven on seven, and those guys get on the outside and can just fucking run, which is pretty amazing to see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was an opportunity for me. It was a challenge. Like, all right, I'm asked. Like for me, everything was related back to my journey. Like, okay, I got to the point where I could run straight. But I couldn't change directions. I couldn't decelerate. I couldn't. I hadn't tackled anybody. And I was like, let me just throw myself in an uncomfortable situation here. And I was sick and tired of like running left every day because that's all you do in track. You just wake <laughs> up and you run left, right? <laughs> every day. I mean, we're and we're in Philly. It's cold as hell. And I'm like watching the rugby team go to practice. So they came on the field after us, and these dudes are like drinking beers on the way to practice. I was like, oh, that looks like fun. And then they're like smacking each other and then they're going to eat after. And I was like, this is the exact opposite of what I just dealt with. I was a very military program that I was in. It was like hard work, blah, blah, blah. Um, great coach. Still, he's going to be at my wedding, all that stuff. But it was hard. And I wanted just to have fun my senior year. So I was like, let me go out for rugby. And I go out there and they're like, all right, let's like hang out in the wing. We'll get you the ball and just score. And I saw I didn't know the game at all. I just got the ball and I would just go score and had an opportunity to come to San Diego. And, uh, you know, they, they were bringing crossover athletes in to, to join the Olympic program. And, uh, you know, I happened to get a chance to, to be in that group. I wasn't very good, like, looking back. Like, I was athletic, but I was very well skilled in the actual sport. Like, the sport can take fast people, but you have to have skill, and I didn't have skill. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was an amazing opportunity. I love, I love rugby, for sure. No, I mean, there's some fast dudes. Like, I just looked it up. There's, like, a dude for the All Blacks that runs uh, 10-6. Um, there's another dude, 10-7. They, they said there's another. I mean, there's yeah. this guy, Christian Wade, uh, is running 11.2 meters per second. I mean, dude, these guys yeah, are flying. Carlin Isles. Yep. Carl. He ran 25.7. He was, he was my first athlete that I coached in the Olympic program. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, they yeah they just showed 25. him. Yeah, they said he's yeah, he's yeah. got uh, – 12.4 meters per second, uh, setting the 100-meter world record. Or, no, I'm sorry, they're, they're comparing to Usain Bolt, but he ran uh, 11.5 meters per second or 25.7 miles per hour, dude. That's fucking yeah, – that's, yeah. that's smoking. Yeah, he's in my stable, so he's one of the athletes we coach, and Perry Baker can run 24 miles per hour. Like, on our on our rugby team, when we were, like, 2016, 17, we had seven guys that could reach 23 miles per hour. Seven. Like that's unbelievable. Like you can't you can't find an NFL team with seven dudes that can run twenty three. I promise you, there's not. There's maybe four per team, three per team in an NFL setting. So yeah, unbelievable speed in that sport for sure. Yeah, no, it's really. Um, I I think uh, the cool thing about rugby is uh you know these dudes were such hard hitting ind individuals, and then all of a sudden like you see like these speedsters and these faster dudes who've kind of specialty players. Um, fucking come out and they just smoke it. It's great to see. I love it. I think it's such a fun sport. Yeah. I, I wish, I mean, I grew up in Southern California and what was not exposed and I did play for the Eagles. So, uh, I lived in Philly, lived in Rittenhouse and, uh, lived in Maniac yeah. and all that. Yeah. So, um, but, uh, dude, I really wish, um, when I went to Cal to go play football, uh, you know, Cal rugby, you know, national champs every year. And we had guys that were, you know, good on our team and went out and were rugby stars. And I was always like, man, I wish I had been exposed to this sport at a younger <laughs> age. I would have loved to have played. Yeah. 
Yeah, if Jack Clark is a man. Mm-hmm. Yep. He's Cal is like unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, those dudes are like like the toughest, toughest athletes that I've that I've coached. I mean, hockey is probably up there too. I just haven't been around hockey enough, but it reminds me of how hockey players' mentalities are for sure. No, well, uh, Cal is such a legacy for it. Um, where like you know, uh, then you, now you have generational where it's like you know guys that I played with and now their kids are playing. And so you'll have like two or three generations of guys who are like Cal rugby players. And it's so cool to see the culture. And then, you know, it's still like watching the NFL now, like I'll see a name flash up and I'll be like, Oh, Oh, that's his kid. Damn. I feel old. So, uh, it's kind (laughs) of neat to see, but it's, it, I mean, I, I really think like rugby is such a, such a neat sport in terms of like athleticism and power. And, you know, for so long, uh, American football has just dominated, but I'd love to see more rugby on TV if I could. For sure. For sure. Nice. I mean, it's a growing sport, but not the fastest growing sport in the country. Is lacrosse the fastest sport in the country? Uh Uh-huh. And Les has had the opportunity to connect with the premier lacrosse league for some developmental uh, speed training for their youth, man. So I I did want to take the time to highlight what you're doing with the the PLL youth. Yeah. No. um, It's funny. Is Okay. Let me me ask you a question before I answer that. Is it the fastest... Is it also the fastest sport in America, like speed-wise? Because, like, if you think about how fast the ball is moving, is there a sport? Is it faster than baseball, like throwing, like pitching? Can we really call baseball a sport? Uh, organized grab ass. <laughs> yeah, organized grab ass yeah, is what yeah. I've been calling it for yeah. years. I, I, yeah. worked, I worked with some baseball players, dude. Like, the fact that you can show up and do your job drunk. Like David Wells was my neighbor in Tampa and dude, the fact that he, he could throw up and fucking throw heat at a hundred hammered. Like, I don't know well, if I can call that a sport. Also to, I, I would, I would disagree. I would disagree. <laughs> I would think it's more of a sport I, I, if you could show up hammered and do it. There's athletes yes. that play baseball, but it's yes. not an athletic. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, endeavor. Yeah. I, big baseball guy yeah. here though. But uh, to, to speak to lacrosse, yeah, you can score within yeah. four seconds off of a faceoff. It's mm-hmm. like a bing, bang, boom. And then the shots go faster than 100 miles an hour and so where a baseball crowd ooze and ahs if a, a baseball player almost gets hit and gets out of the way there's the responsibility of the goalie or any defenseman in front of a shot to eat it so you have to get hit yeah. by the lacrosse ball to then prevent a goal and it's going 100 miles an hour it doesn't feel yeah. good um yeah. so it's so a, fastest yeah yeah america's pa- uh, original pastime ahead of baseball it was invented by the uh, native americans um, but yes, and fastest growing, the concussions are pulling a lot of youth away from football mm-hmm. and lacrosse is there to, to catch all those kids that are interested in a fun, heavily skill related. Is there uh, any head injuries or anything in lacrosse? Well, it depends on how you play. So if you're a football player from Texas that then makes his way to the East Coast, coast and uses your head as a weapon, more or less, but for the most part, it's a very finesse game. Yeah. And if you are yeah. fast... You, they will find a place for you on the field. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I've, I was a big fan of Paul Rabel. Like, I used to watch a lot of lacrosse because I was like, this guy Paul Rabel is like, I mean, he's unbelievable. Like, he's doing things that I, I hadn't seen, and just like I really liked his approach to the and sport. For like, for our audience, Les, I'm sorry to interrupt. Paul Rabel, he yeah. went to Dematha High School, DC area, Johns Hopkins University, which is a Division One lacrosse powerhouse and then initiated and started the premier lacrosse league. So the professional league, yeah. as we know it. After leaving the MLL, 
and then going like he was a player in a league and then decided to start his own league and then play in it. And I'm like, that's gangster. So just like that alone, I'm like, all right, I'm watching this thing. So I'm watching the sport and I, you know, I love the, love the tactical side of, of sports where in football, it's like, like watching how the offense is organized and in soccer, I like to see how, how they develop like different plays and different sets off different things. And lacrosse is like that times a hundred because you have circular motions, you have like different plays, different players on offense and defense, like different numbers. Like it was insane. So, and then I'm looking at like the athleticism of it, watching the midfielders cross midfield and hit super high speeds and then break and then change directions. And I'm watching the attackers like change direction really fast forward back. So I'm like, all right, look, there's this is this is a sport I want to start working with. So I grabbed some high school kids. Um, they ended up going on to play at Stanford and Cal, a couple other places, and um, just started developing them, and they they became monsters. So this this was like a long time coming to get into sports. So essentially, what we're helping athletes do in the in the PLL Academy is help them learn the skills of accelerating and decelerating and how to how to hit high speeds. Um, but a lot of it's focused on. Uh, how they can use speed as a skill in their game and how they can differentiate themselves. And like, just kind of how we were talking, like a lot of people think speed is something you're either born with or you're not. So a lot of kids grow up and they're like, Hey, I'm not fast. I'm going to play this position. But it's like, okay, well, you're not fast now, but you could develop into whatever position you want to play if you're nine years old, 10 years old, like stop. You know what I'm saying? Like these kids, these kids go to these coaches that say, Hey, you're not fast and you're fast. So this is your whole life path. So it's like, bro, you're 10. Like, you could choose to be fast. Like, you can choose. Now, you're not going to be Usain Bolt fast, but you might be a really good accelerator or you might be really good at running high speed. So there's different places for you if you develop that skill. So that's the opportunity we're looking to give these athletes. I mean, it happened to me. I, I was pretty fast when I was younger, and then I grew a whole bunch, and I wasn't fast. And it was fucking yeah. like, it really sucked because I remember uh, I grew a bunch in like, I think it was around seventh and eighth grade and uh, I was super fast in six. And then we had to do every Friday, we had a timed run. And uh, I fucking went from getting an A on my run at a run time to getting like a C or a D. And I was so mortified that uh, I had to go home and tell my mom that I was getting a bad grade in PE that I asked to do, like I've told you a story, like do extra runs. And I remember like telling the teacher, I'm like, is there something extra I can do? She's like, well, we have makeup runs. I'll just give you more points if you show up and run. And I was like, okay. So I had to lie to my mom. I'm like, hey, I'm working or I'm-, I'm uh, I got detention. I know I, I got class. Uh, like I got to study after he picked me up late. And then I would just run the extra runs because I was so, but I've always said, dude, shame is a powerful fucking motivator. And then all of a sudden I showed yeah. up by the time I got to high school. Like I remember I went out and I played high school football um, or my freshman year. And then my sophomore year, I was like, hey, um, I want to run the hurdles. And, uh, I just knew like watching Edwin Moses run the 110 hurdles, like uh, fucking incredible. I loved watching hurdlers. Um, well, yeah. he, he also, uh, Edwin Moses also ran the 400, didn't he? Like the, the longer one. I can't remember if he ran both, but, um, I just remember watching it and I like something I always wanted to do. And so I was able to go out and run hurdles and they were like, Hey, if you throw the shot with us, uh, for us, um, we'll let you run the hurdles. And I was like, sweet. So I went out and threw the shot and then I got to train with this, with the sprinters. And all of a sudden I was fucking fast again. And it was because all of a sudden we were doing the drills and sprinting. What did, yeah, golden 400 hurdles. Yeah, he ran the 400. He, he didn't run the 100, though. Did he? Well, he just has the gold in, in the 400. 400. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it happened by, by training and by going out and running the hurdles. And like, and all of a sudden, as I got bigger and I was 250 pounds, I could still run the hurdles and was still fast. And so I think yeah, like, yeah. And, and it was a lot more beneficial for me to go out and run track 
and do that training than it was to do the football training, which our, uh, our standard conditioning workout was 16 220s. So we'd run a 220. Damn. So it was basically like a, we had a 440 track, right? To tell you how old it is. Uh, we'd walk a 220, run a 220, and you, we'd end up running 16. So it was basically, what's that? Fucking 16 220s. I mean, that's uh, four miles of just sprinting. I mean, it's it, like the most ridiculous yeah. shit you've ever seen. And we did that yeah. in football every Wednesday. That was our speed workout. Yeah. And then, uh, so I was like, dude, yeah. I, I, I felt like I just got slower. And then I just went out and ran high school track and it was fucking the best thing. And then my football coach was mad at me and uh, I'm not a good team player and you think you're better than us and typical bullshit. And I'm like, well, dude, I was smart enough yeah. at 16 years old to get the fuck away from this. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's a very, it's, it, it hasn't changed too much. And like, that's what I'm saying when it comes to speed is that people don't really understand what that, that word means. It's, it's maximal. And, and you can't do anything maximal for a huge volume. It's got to be controlled. It's got to have the right rest. But, yeah, that makes sense to go do all that volume and then get back into a setting where the intention is to run fast, not to run volume. Yeah. Uh, Les, I got a question on uh, athleticism development. And you have the opportunity to work yeah. with a lot of professionals. So I'm curious, man, early specialization, based off the professionals you're working with, has that helped them? Or what do you see? Any problems with it? What do you encourage for your younger athletes to do? Well, when I when I talk to any of my NFL guys, um, not one of them ever specialized in the sport until college. Not one. Like I might have had. Well, that's not entirely true. I think Joe Burrow might have dropped basketball his senior year. But like, I mean, these guys did everything. You know, baseball, basketball, football. Um, I don't see, I don't see early specialization as anything but a good business model for people that are running business models. Amen. Because they they want to. I mean, if I'm a businessman, shit. Like, let's go. I'm soccer twelve months a year. Yeah. Camps, uh, winter camps. It's, like, it's the yeah. it's the club team model, dude. They just fucking they they're they're yeah. building these kids. I mean, literally, Chris and I had this exact today or yesterday, like. Uh, like there's, they're leaving so much athleticism on the table. I mean, the amount of dudes that I played with, like I played with two guys that were, uh, I mean, we know uh, Nick Hardwick wrestled and went out and I think it was, it was like last year, went to go play per, for Purdue. I played with uh, Steve Neal who wrestled in like, uh, you know, I think he might have wrestled in the Olympics, never played football, walked on and played like a decade with the Patriots. And uh, the, the amount of guys, like, I mean, shit, Tony Gonzalez, like never really liked football. He was a way better basketball player. He just knew that he had a better chance to go play in the NFL as a six foot four tight end. I mean, so yes. it's, it drives me crazy that they're forcing kids into this specialization because it makes them so one dimensional. Like, I, you know, like shit, I didn't even play high school or I didn't even play football until I went to high school. And I thought the sport was stupid until all of a sudden I started getting all these scholarship offers, you know? So yeah. it's, yeah, there's, there's too much, there's too much of that. It's a business model. They're trying to keep the money in house. Um, but also like you need to develop other skills. Like you, you become a better football player if you have skill sets from basketball. Like especially think about a receiver, like jumping or like body position or body angle or being able to, to get open, like all those skills, like those things transfer. Like I remember talking to um we got a guy staying on our couch because he just got released from a team and he won't get picked up until next Tuesday. So he's like, let's go, let's go play basketball. And I'm like, all right, let's go. Like, I could probably beat this guy. And he was like, so good. I swear this dude, he put, he's an NFL receiver. I swear he could have played in the NBA, just like how bad he's beating me. And I was like, all right, tell me your story. He's like, look, when I was, when I was younger, um, 
I, I learned releases by learning like the crossover in basketball. Like I just, I, I switched the skill over and it's like, you take even a sport like baseball where yeah. Okay. Might not be the most exciting thing, but there's aspects of the, of the patient side in baseball or being able to maximally do something and then wait around for a while, but stay mentally in tune. You know what I'm saying? So like, you can't learn that just by playing your sport essentially. Um, I think about like my daughter, like her, she's two. My pathway for her is, is dance. Like she's going to dance. And then when she gets to the point where she's starting to talk back to me, we're going to do martial arts. And then when she wants to go put, have fun and be outside, we're going to do soccer. And I'm going to just stack these sports and these skills. But yeah, it's, it's, um it's sad because a lot of the people that are running these clubs have no idea that a hundred competitions a year is not good for yeah. a 14 year old soccer girl. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like uh, it, it's not good swimming <laughs> for your daughter. So swimming and then also gymnastics. Yep. So like when we look gymnastics, yeah. So when we looked at all the Russian training manuals, when they were talking about like uh, developing athletes, like they put the kids in dance was the first one. Cause it taught them rhythm. Swimming was different orientations, you know, like different uh, atmosphere, kind of like within the water gliding completely different. Uh, gymnastics in terms of orientation, developing the inner ear. I mean, so like, yeah, I mean, like you're, you know, dance for rhythm, you know, swimming, gymnastics, and then putting them into some form of sport. Um, like I, I didn't learn how to cut a dude off or how to pass protect uh, playing football. I learned it boxing, how to cut a dude off in the ring, yeah. play two thirds inside yeah. out, first meaningful touch. I mean, all the shit that I learned within the boxing ring and fighting, uh, that was more beneficial for me uh, learning to play offensive line. When I went out there, I was like, shit, this is like fighting against dudes that don't know how to use their hands or how to fight. You know, I, right. I mean, now the one regret I was telling Chris, I wish I had wrestled in high school. Uh, I started getting all these scholarship yeah. offers and I was too nervous about like losing weight. You remember that whole thing? We were like, oh, you're going to lose weight. You're, you know, never going to be able to put it back on. And I didn't go wrestle. And now I wish I had because when all of a sudden I started playing with those wrestlers like Steve Neal and those guys, they had such incredible balance and their ability to like yeah. absorb and reload and redirect and move within space. I was like, fuck, like I learned it in a different way. These guys, I wish I'd had that skill as well. You know, because football isn't yeah, like it, it's such an unnatural sport in terms of like what's demanded of you. But what's wild is the best football players I was ever around were really good at other things that actually contributed to football. Do you yeah, less hundred percent? You take the dance moves that your daughter's class does and teach them to like Hutchinson and your defensive lineman. <laughs> He has that on his own. <laughs> Hutch has that on his own. Well, defensive linemen aren't very smart, uh, so you got to like you know use Crayolas and draw it out for him. Usually, I don't so. know. He went to Michigan. Uh, these dudes, these dudes are so did Runyon. Geniuses now. So did Runyon, and uh, Runyon's a rocket scientist, even though he was a, he was a congressman. So, okay, Steve Moving. Everett. Steve. Steve. Steve Everett. Chris Everett. Center. Yeah, yeah. Uh, next up, man, in the the business of battling bullshit. <laughs> I love that you're on a mission to educate coaches and see where speed can can fit into the practices and not take away from the speed that they work so hard to develop in the offseason. What are some big things that coaches are, are miss, missing, even speed coaches, that they're missing in training, in programming, that you see that are taking away from athletes' performance? Because that's why we're really here. Right to empower athletes. How much time, how much time you got? Uh, Thirty minutes. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, could, I could go for I could go forever. All right. So the, here's the main thing. Just how we talked about early specialization for for sports. There's uh, specialization in, in speed as well. So it, what is specialization to me is technique. So what most people think is speed is like get really good at techniques. So let's watch. 
Usain Bolt, and then let's go out and let's try to mimic that. So the biggest issue with that is that different limb lengths are going to produce different styles of running. So Usain Bolt, he can produce a longer ground contact. And his foot can stay longer on the ground because his leg is three times my leg. So he's got a longer distance that he's covering. He's got a longer contact distance, right? Or he's going to have a, like a bigger like thigh lift that's going to look like a certain way. But like not everybody's going to have that. So trying to fit a technical model to every kid that's exactly the same is the biggest pet peeve that I have. And in fact, I would say if I'm a coach and I'm starting out and I'm working with youth athletes, the first thing that I should get really good at is understanding periodization. And not just periodization, like strength only, like periodization as a philosophy, like understanding when and where and how to, what's the GPP phase? Like what are special exercises? Like however you look, I don't care if you look at Bonner Chuck, I don't care if you look at Charlie Francis, I, I don't care. Like learn some style of periodization. Um, and research and go ask coaches like, hey, coach, like, what is your philosophy? So starting there and then understanding what volume, intensity and density is. So how much work do we have to do to get this job done? How fast does that work needed to be? And then how many breaks should we be taking and how long should those breaks take? Like understand that. And then from there, if you can do, do those two things well, where you're able to schedule out times where you'll accelerate, times where you'll hit high speed, times where you'll do changes of direction. If you do that alone, you're, you're basically a professional, you're an Olympic level coach. Now, the next phase of that is like, now, if you get to the point where you've seen enough runs that you can start to understand different types of runners based around how they're built, then you can start giving advice on, hey, this is how I would best recommend doing speed training. Oh, can you guys hear me? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I, I muted. Yeah, so this is, this is how I'd best recommend um, implementing your, your training. And from there, using drills as your coaching. Most of the time when I go to like other coaches' speed sessions, it's the kid running and the coach is screaming at them while they're running full speed. Lift your knees, do this, do that. Like you come to our speed sessions, I've had coaches say, you didn't say anything. I'm like, yeah, I know. It was a great session, right? Like, you know what I mean? That's the goal. If I could say nothing, that's the goal. But I do that over time by putting you through different progressions of different drills, of different things to get to that final. Well, you're also not thing. a cheerleader. And, like, uh, I've, I've, like right. I always tell our athletes, if we're not saying anything, you're doing it right. Like, I'll yell at you if it's fucked up right. or if some said. And so, like, right. I think people are like, well, you didn't say anything. I'm like, well, it looked pretty good. If it sucked, you would have heard about it. I'm not a fucking cheerleader. Yeah. Yeah. No, facts. Facts. But most most coaches, like, I shouldn't say most coaches. That's, like, really aggressive. I should say there's a lot of coaches entering in the industry for other reasons. And those reasons are to get fame, to get a blue check, to get money. But like coaching is probably the most selfish thing you can do. And obviously there's money involved in it because you got to get a living. But I think if the, the better coach you are, the more selfless of a person and the more giving you are. Typically, like all the coaches I know at the highest level are very like giving and very good humans. But what happens is like you get a lot of fluff in the beginning part because people are entering because they want to get on, you know, they want to get that blue check. They want to get some money and it's a hustle. But, like, you're dealing with lives and you're dealing with, like, I mean, all of us remember our coaches when we were 13, 14 years old. I, I couldn't tell you some of my teachers' names, but I remember my coaches, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. you, you have the biggest influence in some of these kids' lives. So, like, like I don't ever curse in podcasts, but if your goal is to, to get rich and famous, stay the fuck out of my industry. Like, I don't want people like that because you're dealing with humans 
you're dealing with you're dealing with people that really need you. So if your intentions are aren't there, then it, it's not good. So that's that's the biggest thing I see. Now there are a lot of good coaches getting into the industry, but I really uh, you know that's a huge point that I've like never made on a podcast before that like there's so much of that BS going on. Yeah, and now you can pay for a blue check, so. Stay the fuck out of our industry. <laughs> oh, 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 blue check. I was thinking, uh, I was thinking like a physical check, like a blue, um, I would fucking social media. I would. Big checks. Why can't I get one of those? Yeah, I just want a big check. Happy Gilmore. I want it blue, you know, but yeah, no, I, I, no, I, I yeah, no, Instagram yeah, no, I was, fuck. I, I was like, yeah, fucking, of course everybody wants a check. And then I'm thinking, wait a minute, blue check. Oh, fuck that. No, but I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, dude, I, I'm with you, dude. Like, you know, we constantly run into coaches and, you know, people. And, and I I think people are really good at just finding somebody who's like information or their success and then parroting it. Like there's very few original thinkers. And I think when you do meet people that are original thinkers that are doing something new and attacking it in a different way, like those are industry leaders. And uh, I mean, we run into people that are just real good at parroting somebody else's content. Yeah, hundred percent. And then it breaks down at a certain point. It's like, it, it really, it really comes down to this. It's like, if your if your intention is to grow as a coach, you're gonna continuously read and study and go all this. But if your intention is to make money, you're 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 gonna figure out ways to do that. It's it's hard to do both when you're first starting, which is why internships are important. Which is why growing under a coach is important. So you can go through those phases of, all the phases you would you know that would say like the bad phase of trying to get fame, all this stuff. Like you're going through that being mentored by somebody like coaches are jumping in the industry after completing a degree and going straight to like, I'm going to coach at this team and do all this. I'm like, dude, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta learn and understand what this industry is really about and what your actual uh, purpose is here. And then you can start to look at how do I make that a business model? You know? Yeah, whether it's sport with football coaches, especially here in Texas, where they're guarding their their program, whether their it's fiefdoms. strengths or their their offense, whatever they guard it, and we see the same thing in the the performance industry. They're guarding it, and what what you've done a good job on this podcast, sharing the mentors of people and referencing other folks. You've also done a good job, and I've had the opportunity to to work through your online education. So giving away your information, you think you can do this better than me? Here's all everything that I've learned in my experience, and I want you to empower athletes. So um, speak to that online education that you've built and the aim and you're hoping to accomplish by putting all your information out there. Yeah, no, like my goal is to help athletes. And and the best vehicle to help athletes is to help the people that are coaching them. So like if, if, I, if I were to look at the industry 10 years ago, there was a lot more, this is mine, don't share, don't talk about it. And it's tough because, like, as a coach, had I not had Dan Paff or Jonas or Stu or all these people, like, pour into me, I probably would have been, like, on the other side of coaching where it was just, like, a strictly business model where it's just, here's how I make money and this is, I go home. Um, you know, so I think what I wanted to do was provide resources for, for coaches that they could deliver to athletes. Like, we did a lot of direct-to-athlete stuff, but – I found it difficult because um, I found it really hard for athletes to stay engaged without somebody walking them through it because it's a it's a, kind of a new skill in some ways. So I really switched and pivoted towards coaches and building communities because when I, when I was younger, sports saved my life. And had I not had a coach, had I not had some of the experience I had with coaches, I could have been in a completely different 
lifestyle at this point. So it's like, what is a bigger goal? And obviously we, we found a way to like make it a business model. We still struggle with that, but um, the, as long as the mission is to help more people, I felt really confident about putting every single thing that I do out there. Um, and even to be critiqued or made better, like sometimes I give information out and then somebody does it way better than I could have ever done it. And I'm like, okay, can you teach me that? You know, it's like helped me grow as a coach and it's built like this online community where coaches are sharing more, coaches are talking more. There's less like beef, like people are going to conferences, people are seeing the importance of the education as a coach. And, you know, we all need guidance in this thing. Like I, I still have um, mentors and guider, like people that guide me even more so now than I did in the beginning. So I think it's a necessary thing for, for our industry. Yeah, we aim to uh, empower performance and create hammers that can make an impact as coaches. So similar online vein and then get coaches to travel out to us to go through it and be critiqued. So part of our certification process is you fly out to Austin and educate and teach and converse with us. And then we provide feedback to help you garner and improve your, your professionalism in this industry. So helping to develop coaches, not only so they can pair it in, not only, so they don't <laughs> pair it information. No, they understand it and can, can deliver it yeah. to the parent, the sport coach, or the athlete in a way that they can understand it. Well, I mean, we see it. I mean, dude, right. I, I'm sure you see it within the strength game where you hear people like saying stuff, and you're like, oh yeah, no, I I read that book too. I mean, I hear it constantly. I mean, especially with uh, God, who who's the strength coach? Uh, Franz Bosch. Oh, oh my God. I I don't know if you have the opportunity to explore some of his books last, but it's it's awesome. Course, it's great. Yeah, yeah no, uh, like Frank, like so. Yeah. I I come from the Charlie Francis school and had the opportunity to work with Charlie many years ago. Um, when I ruptured my patellar tendon, he actually gave me EMS protocols that helped me get back. And we talked a bunch about training. Yeah. So Charlie was a big influence, and uh, um, you know, Franz Bosch, incredible stuff. But it's wild, like where I hear, you know, it's like, um, you know, the only uh, analogy I can give it is like carb cycling. You know, Mauro De Pasquale is the guy that invented that, and Mauro did my diet, and I'll hear people still recycling his shit and just being like, oh, I come up with this. And you're like, yeah, man, I, it's 20 years ago, dude, at least. Pay. But, John, you only got 60 seconds on TikTok. No time to give credit. <laughs> yeah, to give context. No, but it's, uh, I, like, I always appreciate where people are like, I mean, you've done a, an excellent job here being like, you know, these are the mentors. I wouldn't be here without these people. This is where the information, which I think we've also done a good job of, where it's like, fuck, man, I didn't invent any of this stuff. We just found a different way to kind of talk about it and arrange it. Yeah, no, there's nothing new in the industry. I'm sorry. Like, you know, like I, I saw something on like foot strength and all that and people are like, oh, this is new. And the article was great. It's not new. Like Charlie was talking about that. And before Charlie, Ralph Mann and all those, like everybody's been talking. It's just different. Um, information is disseminated through culture. And when you can match up information and culture, you get retention. And like, sometimes the stuff is coming through TikTok now and you're like, oh, that's BS, but they can, people can actually digest it, whether they, you know, came up with it or not. And like, they get, people are really good at explaining things now. I have to say influencers for all the things that I don't like about them. They can take a whole subject and explain it in 30 seconds. Like that's a skill set yeah. that we need. Um, and like, at least to another point, like real quick is like, coaches um should study project management they should study um other other fields like they could study like 
what is a graphic designer? How do they build their hours? Like, cause like our coaching feels like we grow up and we go through school and you do all the strength stuff and you, you know, get into your niche and that's all you, you, you've pretty much been in that category for a while, but there's so much to learn from outside categories like in marketing, business, project management. So some of that is like, once you learn those things, then you can, you could take whatever product or whatever you were regurgitating and you could shape it up in a better way where people can grasp it and understand it. Yeah. What, what I'm curious what you studied at, at school while you were there. I studied film film. I was, I, be, I was studying to become an editor. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, you know what? So this is crazy. This is like, I was just talking about this yesterday. So when I was in high school that we did, we had Facebook and all that, that just came out as a senior. But when I was a senior in college, Instagram was coming out. So in film class, we were talking about Instagram in film class and the potential and what we should do now on Instagram. And like, I mean, things like um, when I was starting out, like we, you know, we spent hours and hours on a computer learning shortcuts for editing. Well, that became my superpower for coding because I, I got really familiar. It, you know, that was super helpful. I had a ton of computer time and like I was computer literate. And then Instagram, like, I started posting in 2000, 2011, you know, like, as soon as it came out, I'm sitting with my film teacher and, like, yo, what kind of, how do I do graphic design now? How do I do this thing? Like, the first part of my career until I had a marketing director, I did every single thing. And my film career was was super helpful because it's also storytelling. Mm -hmm. So most of my classes were on how do you tell a story? So how do you tell a story through editing? How do you tell a story through shooting? How do you tell a study, tell a story through producing? And you would have to, you would have to go in these different roles and tell stories. Well, when you look at sports, it's like you have a sports scientist, you have a general manager, you have your sport coach, you have your strength coach. You're telling stories from different perspectives, but the goal is still the same thing. You still want to win a game and get to a championship and get a Super Bowl. But you have to learn those perspectives in order to have a full picture. I couldn't be a good editor unless I knew filming couldn't do filming unless I knew producing. So they make you learn everything. Now our field is very siloed. So strength and conditioning, strength and conditioning is S and C. Speed is speed. You know, like nutrition is nutrition. Um, you know, sports science is sports science, but nobody speaks a common language because they hadn't been in those roles. You know what I mean? So I didn't become a good speed coach until I was working as a strength coach with the US Olympic teams and learning I don't know shit about periodization. I have to study it. I have to study it because I, I can't just keep doing workouts. You know, I have to, I have to learn planning. I have to learn tactical periodization. I have to learn all these things that, that I, that I didn't have the skill sets for and continue to look at myself and be like, I need to get better here. I need to get better here. So yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. I, I imagine very helpful, especially when you're communicating to your athletes. Because they are writing their own story, and you can help bring that whole scale, the whole project into perspective. Because not only do they have to train with you, they also have to recover. They also have to understand their body, their nutrition, their recovery. They got to learn the offense, defense, etc. And they got to look out for themselves. You know, dealing with you know contracts and unruly fans and all those stresses that come with being <laughs> a professional athlete. But that, that's, that's awesome, man. I appreciate the Well, I mean, uh, he lives in Philly. He knows on. all about unruly fans. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, Philly is the, the best fan. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> I, Eagles, I, yeah. no I, I do. Yeah. Uh, the best 
and most unruly other than um having uh, you know played with philly was awesome but uh going and playing in oakland uh, against the raiders when i was with the chiefs and into that fucking cesspool that is the black hole like i fucking hate the raiders and the raiders and i grew up a raiders fan i grew up in la and playing like and going into oakland and i mean i went to berkeley too and going in and playing in that like the people i just am like oh god the lowest level life forms are people that come on youtube videos and raiders fans that go to the games what about Raiders fans that comment on YouTube videos? Uh, the lowest level life forms on the planet. Like, ah, fuck. Like, I remember uh, there was a, a grandmother, grandkid, and like, uh, I'd like to be her son. And like, they were like the kid, like the grandma was holding the kid. The kid had to be like three or four. He's just like double fucking middle fingers. And the grandmother pulled her pants down and beat us. And then the kid, and then the son oh was God. there with like a sign that was like, fuck you. So like, the son had a fuck you sign. The three-year-old was given double birds. And then the grandma fucking pulled her ass out and beat us. And I'm like, some classy people we got here, Oakland. I mean, like, like <laughs> the shit you would see, like, uh, you know, like the kids would come up behind the bench and you turn around. And it was just like some six-year-old kid motherfucking you like you never heard. And you're like, holy shit. If my six-year-old kid was talking like that. I'd fucking smash him. But it's Ra Ra Raiders fans, different breed, different breed. The Philly fans just yeah. want to get drunk and fight everybody, which I appreciate. Um, but yeah, the... Uh, yeah, the fucking Raiders fans or something else. Yeah, for sure. Nice. Well, cool, man. Les, I appreciate your time, dude, and, and on point with this online education. Where can people learn more and follow you on social and check out your website? Yeah, so easy website, my name, lesspelman.com. Uh, social, Les7Spelman, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, yeah, I talk a lot of trash on there, so just hop on and Join the conversations. Um, yeah, what are you, you talking trash about? What are you talking about trash about? Or what are you talking trash on about oh, training? Yeah, I mean, just you know, it could be any. It could be it could be uh, anybody the Eagles are playing, ah. or it could be <laughs> it could be uh, training, it could be whatever. Okay. But yeah, we have fun on there, so hop on. All right, I like it. I like it. Sweet. Yeah. All right. Thanks for joining us on Power Athlete Radio. Bye. Bye.